All right, next we have verses 17 through 20, and this is a different harvest. This is a harvest of grapes, not a harvest of wheat. Um, so I have entitled this Grapes of Divine Wrath. <clears throat> so verses 17 and 18, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So notice uh, some of the language in verse 17 and the first part of 18. It says, another angel came out. This is the fifth angel in the sequence. Uh, in chapter, or in verse 18, then another angel came. Uh, that is the sixth angel. But here when it says he also had a sharp sickle, this also refers back to the possession of the Son of Man in verse 14. So this angel bears similarities with the Son of Man in that he has the same tool, but in his very being, his likeness is related to the other angels. So he is not a greater angel, but he has given, been given a similar task. Okay, four things to pull out of this. Uh, why, if the Son of Man harvests the grain harvest, is an angel worthy of harvesting um, for the next harvest after the Lord? Uh, what does it mean that the angel has power over fire? What is the altar? And uh, what are these clusters of grapes? So it's not uncommon, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, to view angels as participants or instruments of divine judgment. Uh, so we read in Matthew 13, 49 to 50, specifically concerning, concerning this end time judgment, um, that the Lord will uh, give these angels the right to perform uh, different tasks in this judgment. So what makes these angelic reapers worthy is they've been given a task, they've been given a command um, by the Lord himself. So it will be at the end of the age, reads Matthew, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the Lord had used these angels for divine judgment. All right, what does it mean for an angel to have power over fire? And uh, does that make him special or unique? Uh, yes and no. Uh, he is um, unique and he is special in a sense, uh, but only so much as the other angels who have been given tasks are special and unique. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, the list kind of goes on and on and on and on, especially in Revelation uh, about angels who have been designated a specific task. And you can also watch that, with the exception of Satan, they're all faithful to carry out their tasks. But uh, in Revelation 5.2, we see a herald in the throne room of God announcing the worthy one who is able to open uh, the seals. This is not a job for just any angel, but there is one specific angel who makes this announcement. In Revelation 7, we see a group of four angels who have been given tasks over the four winds of the earth. Uh, 
in Revelation 7, uh, we see an angel that has been tasked with sealing the 144,000 with the seal of God. In 8.3, we see an angel um, who uh, ministers at the golden altar. In Revelation 9.1, we see an angel has been assigned to the abyss. In Revelation 10.1, we see that a strong angel comes with a scroll uh, in his hand and thunder um, in his other, I believe. Uh, a couple more, we see that there are angels over specific nations. I think that is in uh, Daniel, we see that. Uh, and then what should be readily apparent to us is there are angels assigned to specific seals, trumpets, and bowls. Um, so all of these angels have been given specific tasks by the Lord. Uh, and for some of these tasks, the, com uh, the completion of it requires uh, certain abilities. This uh, angel has been given the ability uh, or the uh, domain over fire. We're not given much detail about what that means, uh, but we do have angels here who control the four winds. Uh, we have an angel that we're going to look at a little later that controls water. Uh, so uh, we can only take that for whatever it means that we have information to explain. Uh, scripture wasn't really written as an angelology text. Uh, angels are part of God's creation, but we're not given an exhaustive account of all that they do and all that their uh, capabilities and functions are. I'm sure we will know more about it uh, in the uh, kingdom to come as we uh, dwell in the presence of the Lord. We will know more about his creation. In fact, uh, if you read Job 38 to 40, you'll see that there are plenty of things not revealed that, of course, in those chapters get revealed. But uh, you see the Lord telling Job that there are many, many things regarding creation that have not been revealed to man. Some of the functions of angels have not been revealed to man. Uh, and that's simply because scripture was written to man in the context of man so that man might learn uh, who God is, but especially uh, what a relationship with God entails, uh, how to have fellowship with God, how to operate within the covenants that God makes with man. Um, essentially, uh, scripture is primarily an experiential salvation text. That means how do we experience our salvation? Scripture details that for us. It draws us closer to God uh, by telling us about our relationship with him. Uh, only when our relationship with him concerns angels are we told uh, information about angels. <clears throat> all right, what is this altar? So we saw already a temple. Um, the angel comes out of the temple. Um, these angels also come out of the temple. Um, but one of these angels specifically, it says, is the angel of the altar. Actually, is that how it's phrased? Let's see. Uh, yeah, it says in verse 18, then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he cried with a loud voice. In Revelation 6, 9 through 10, we saw this altar for the first time. It says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging, the, from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So if you remember back to probably uh, April or May, 
when we did Revelation 6, uh, we identified this altar as the altar of incense, not the burnt or the offer of the burnt, the altar of the burnt offering, because uh, the burnt offering looked forward to the final sacrifice, the atonement of sins, which Jesus Christ has already rendered complete. This uh, altar of incense, however, was an altar uh, for prayers. And we see here the prayers of the martyrs being offered on this altar. The same angel who, uh, who administers this altar has a golden censer. In Revelation 8.3, it says another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the purpose of those prayers and of the incense on the altar is told to us in the next two verses. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. These prayers from the altar that were scooped up and thrown down to the earth initiated the trumpet judgments. Uh, those judgments that wiped out one third of uh, plant and animal life as well as human life came from these prayers. But now we see the same altar, the same angel from the altar uh, coming to execute the final judgment, the judgment at Armageddon. Uh, in Revelation 16, 5 through 6, we read, And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were a holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Oh, this is why. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So in Revelation 16, 7, uh, in the midst of the bowl judgments, remember, first the altar uh, of the uh, prayers of those martyrs initiated the trumpet judgments. Now we see them agreeing uh, with the righteousness and the judgment of God Almighty during the bowl judgments. Uh, but here we have it's uh, also in agreement with another angel and uh, this is the angel over water. Um, so again, we don't know exactly what that means, but this was a way that John was able to identify uh, this angel. And the, uh, the, uh, the uh, way that the Lord is able to, uh, or the Lord is justified uh, in this judgment in that uh, it is righteous judgment for the blood that has been poured out of all the saints and the prophets. Um, so this angel says they deserve it. And all those souls at the altar agree and say, yes, uh, you're right. Your judgments are righteous. All right. Uh, so what are these clusters of grapes? Uh, well, these clusters of grapes are uh, a judgment that has been predicted um, essentially since the beginning of the prophets. Uh, they have all looked forward to 
uh, this final judgment where the Lord stamps out the unrighteous on the earth, uh, especially those unrighteous which have plagued Israel. Uh, this is a, uh, a promise of that time which the Lord will rescue Israel from the midst of destruction when the Israel of God, that is the uh, believing remnant of Israel, um, becomes the entire nation of Israel. So here in Isaiah's prophecy uh, of chapter 18, we read, For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth and the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts for a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide, to a, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So I believe this is looking forward um, to the final judgment on this earth uh, when the Lord will return to Mount Zion. Uh, he will place his feet on the mountain. It will uh, divide in two and a river will come out of it. Uh, I guess we'll look at that more when we get to Ezekiel uh, after we do Daniel. Um, so might be about a year out on that one. But uh, I'm sure we'll look at it more when we see the Lord's return in chapter 19. All right, verses 19 and 20. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, this is very different than the grain harvest. The grain harvest, they were gathered into the, um, into the kingdom or thrown into the fires. Here we have uh, the, uh, the wine press being trodden uh, and blood rising up to about six feet or five feet um, for a distance of 200 miles. But uh, also, let's see. My clusters of iron through them into the great wine press. So the wine press was trodden outside the city. Uh, the city in this context, some people uh, have argued about what city is this outside of. Some think it's Babylon, um, but Babylon is part of this judgment. We're going to look at a map um, a little later on and see that uh, this is next to Jerusalem, but it is not inside Jerusalem. It is outside of Jerusalem. Uh, to say that this is really any city besides Jerusalem is to... Uh, miss the context that this is a judgment of all those on earth who have gathered um, in the valley of Armageddon, as we'll look at in a second, uh, in order to make war with God and to make war with God's people. This is 
kind of the final inflection of the Antichrist's uh, worldwide campaign against the people of God who have been at this time protected in Petra. Um, and we'll see that this 200 miles uh, goes all the way from Basra up to, uh, I think, Galilee, north of Jerusalem. Uh, Basra is where Petra is, uh, where the people will be protected. Um, so this campaign will, uh, this uh, final military campaign will really spread over almost all of the promised land. All right, so finally, we have this wine press, what exactly it is. Uh, it is nothing short of the final battle, Armageddon, uh, which is the entire world arrayed uh, to make war with Jesus Christ at his return. So here we come to the Lord's return, where the previous uh, harvest, the grain harvest, looked towards that last half of the tribulation period, the bowl judgments. This is the final harvest at the very end, probably in the last 24 hours of the tribulation. This is looking forward. Again, um, this is not part of the sequence, but this is an overall look at the sequence that we're about to do in a, a little more detail. Uh, and this harvest uh, was prophesied by Joel. Uh, Joel, uh, his entire uh, prophetic book is all about the day of the Lord, uh, the end times, um, especially the last part of the tribulation period. So Joel's vision begins here in uh, verse 13, chapter 3. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So we see in this context, when we're comparing scripture with scripture, that the city, and surely all Jews would have been aware of this prophecy of Joel, uh, the city that this battle takes place outside of is Jerusalem. And the Lord is at this time protecting his people in Jerusalem uh, from the armies around them. And in verse 15, nope, that's a repeat. All right. In Revelation 16, uh, we're going to see this uh, again, because in Revelation 16, we arrive chronologically at this point. Remember, chapter 14 gives us an overview of uh, chapters 15 through 18, actually 15 through 19. Uh, Revelation 16 is where we arrive at this chronologically. So that battle in Revelation 16 is described this way. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. And they gather them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon, um, and that means uh, the mountain of 
Megiddon, and I can't remember what Megiddon means. But when we get to Revelation 16, I will probably remember. Um, so I will let you know then. So I haven't put in a whole bunch of information about Armageddon because we're probably going to spend an entire evening on it uh, in just a couple of short weeks when we get to chapter 16. Uh, but let's take a look at that map here. We see that the campaign of Armageddon isn't just uh, one little location um, and one little army of people, but really it's the final world war campaign that's focused um, in the Middle East. Uh, so that we have um, in stage one here, um, over by the Valley of Megiddo, all the assembling of the allies of the Antichrist. And that's really how we get enough people there to fit this full description of um, blood all the way up to a man's chest uh, for 200 miles. And that, that may well be about 200 square miles. Uh, we have in phase two, that's chapters 17 and 18 of uh, Revelation, the destruction of Babylon. So at the same time that these armies are gathering uh, near Jerusalem, we'll have their headquarters itself being divinely demolished. Uh, Jerusalem will fall uh, during this campaign. The armies of the Antichrist will travel to Basra where the remnant of Israel is being protected in Petra. Uh, at this point, the nation itself will be regenerated. The nation itself, seeing the Antichrist coming against them, this man that they uh, signed a peace treaty with, this man that broke that peace treaty and now brings the entire world against them. Finally, rather than looking to him as a Messiah, they will turn to Jesus Christ looking at him um, as the Messiah. And that uh, is the catalyst for the end at that point where Israel is converted nationally so that not one member of the uh, of those Jews alive does not believe in Jesus Christ, just as back in Exodus uh, 4 and Exodus 10, where we saw the entire nation at its beginning uh, believed in God. So at the end of this nation on this earth, every single member alive on this earth will believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That is the catalyst for bringing the Lord back to this earth to have victory over the Antichrist and to take that nation that now recognizes him as their Messiah. Uh, so this will be the Battle of Basra and that Battle of Basra or Petra uh, will end the tribulation. Um, and it will end in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Um, and that is where the Antichrist will be slain. He will be conquered by the Lord himself. Uh, and then the Lord will um, ascend up the Mount of Olives in victory. Uh, so that is the campaign of Armageddon in a nutshell. And of course, we're going to dig in a bit more once we get there in the text. But uh, chapter 14 has given us basically the uh, table of contents for what's about to happen in the text, um, possibly for, for uh, merely the ability to get through the text, because it can be pretty heavy and pretty weighty when we're seeing all these wars and all these plagues and the bold judgments that we will begin um, in chapters 15 and 16 are the worst judgments yet. So uh, this gives us a bit of hope because we see that the Lord will be victorious over all the evil on this earth during the tribulation. All right. 
with that, we are done tonight's study. Uh, next week, we're not in Revelation. We are in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. Um, we're going to look at the Palestinian covenant or what we're calling more recently the land covenant uh, that God uh, made with Israel. So if you remember the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, um, the Abrahamic covenant gave Israel a promised land, a promised seed, and a promised uh, place of blessing. And the Mosaic covenant came along to regulate those promises so that they couldn't uh, destroy them. Uh, like uh, the Edemic covenant when, or the uh, Edenic covenant, when Adam had no restraints except for one world of obedience, the Abrahamic covenant came along to regulate those promises so that when they were given those eternal promises, um, they were given those promises in faith. Uh, so we're going to look at the land covenant, why Israel has a right to the land, and the, how God will bring about his, uh, his promise of restoring the lands to them in the millennial kingdom. So uh, that's Revelation 14. <clears throat>